That's right, folks. We are back in the 13 realms. And today we have a guest like no other. We have Tim Cove. You might know him as Yeti Goose in the Discord. He is the lore master, the writer of the Kingdom of Dwarves story. You've been enjoying his writing ever since the beginning of this podcast. And this chapter is no different. It's such an awesome chapter. There's tension, there's action, there's all of the above. Let's check it out. Chapter 3. The Town Square It was clear to Grog that the worst of the bloodshed and chaos was taking place in and around Longdale's large town square. This seemed to be the epicenter of the fires that were spreading throughout the town, and it was definitely where most of the horribly ominous noises were coming from. He approached the square from a dark laneway, and... In what he felt was his first sensible decision of the evening, he didn't go charging straight out into the center of the square with Ars Ripper raised over his head, but stayed flattened against the smooth stone wall of the town's central post office and peered around the corner of the building. It became immediately evident that things were not going well for the dwarves of Longdale. At least 50 of the ghastly, undead dwarves were gathered in the square. Their hideous faces, illuminated by the flames, which leaked from dozens of burning buildings. Some of these dwarves were continuing to set buildings aflame. Some were hurling spears and throwing axes at the few brave defenders who remained, perched on rooftops and firing arrows into the howling mob. But most of the undead dwarves were gathered in front of the town hall and were bashing upon its mighty doors with maces, clubs, and fists. Grog could hear screams coming from inside the hall. Even above the roaring of the flames and the guttural snarling of the undead, these high-pitched wails of terror cut through the cacophony and knocked into his guts like shards of ice. For these were the screams of children, and if the only help coming was a fat, drunk, injured fool like Grog, then these little ones were as good as dead. Grog cast his eyes around the square, searching desperately for a solution. What he saw instead were the scattered bodies of town guards and other unfortunate dwarves sprawled on the bloodied cobblestones. He also saw... A dwarf in a black hooded cloak stooped over one of the corpses furthest from the town hall. The hooded dwarf was moving the glowing amethyst head of a staff back and forth over the inert body. No, not inert. The dead dwarf was rising, its head and shoulders lifting off the ground as though pulled by invisible hooks. Grog pressed a fist against his mouth and fought down the hot bile that surged up his throat as the reanimated dwarf gained its feet and opened its eyes. Even from across the square, Grug could see them glowing with a sickly purple light. The creature turned its head toward the town hall, paused for a long moment, 
and then staggered away to join the attack on the doomed families of Longdale. The black-robed necromancer moved on to the next corpse. As soon as he'd knelt down with his back to Grog and extended his staff over another body, Grog emerged from the inky blackness of the lane. He didn't run. He didn't bellow a war cry or issue an honorable challenge. He just walked with brisk and even steps towards the robed figure. His bare feet made no sound. He wore no armor to rattle or creak. He just walked with his jaw set and his weapon slung over his shoulder. Despite Grog's stealth, the robed dwarf turned and looked up when Grog was just a few paces away. Perhaps it was some wizard's sixth sense that had alerted the evil dwarf to Grog's presence. Perhaps it had been Grog's leaping shadow, painted across the cobblestones by flickering flames. Whatever it was, the warning came too late for the necromancer, who had just enough time to open his eyes in stunned surprise before Arsripper fell and caved his skull in. There'll be no more of that, Grog shouted, gesturing with Arsripper towards the fallen guard. No, Grog turned towards the town hall, ready to die at the hands of the fifty fiends that were now doubtlessly aware of his existence. Who's next? The undead dwarves didn't answer. They didn't raise their weapons or start sprinting towards him. What they did was collapse like boneless puppets cut from their strings. All of them. Well, Grog looked down at our stripper, then back up at the mass of inanimate bodies crumpled in front of the town hall. That was fucking easy. Shouts of jubilation echoed in the far distance, and through the bellowing smoke, Grog could make out the shapes of dwarves standing on rooftops behind the town hall. They were jumping up and down and cheering. This doesn't make up for anything, a voice in Grog's head informed him. This was nothing. The bastard voice in Grog's head wasn't quite enough to ruin the moment all by itself but it soon had help from another sound. One that was external and coming from the opposite side of the square. One that had previously been drowned out by the gurgling and groaning of the undead abominations, but now grew louder with each passing moment. It was the sound of boots on cobblestones. Lots of boots. Grog turned and immediately realized just how right the bastard voice in his head had been. His efforts had amounted to nothing. Everyone in Longdale was still going to die. Scores of grim-looking dwarves were marching towards the square, not glowing-eyed undead, but dwarves, real, living, armored and cloaked, armed to the teeth, murderous-looking, scary as fuck dwarves. Grog began backing away. The surge of hatred and fury which had overwhelmed him and driven him out of his hiding place in the alley was subsiding. Now his survival instincts were being given a chance to have a say and they were telling him to put as much distance as dwarvenly possible between himself and the small army that was bearing down on him. No! 
he shouted aloud, at no one in particular. His cowardly legs stopped retreating, and as ridiculously futile as it was, he settled into a fighting stance, spat in the general direction of the advancing dwarves, and gave Ars Ripper a satisfying little flourish. Then, something happened that made Grog wish he'd just charged straight into the mob of advancing dwarves and died quickly. At least then, he wouldn't have seen a few of the advancing dwarves enter the square and break away from the main group. He wouldn't have seen them raise their purple-headed staffs and point them at the mass of bodies sprawled in front of the town hall. He wouldn't have seen every last one of those bodies begin to twitch, spasm, and rise again. Now that, Grog muttered, almost dropping his weapon, is some bullshit. Time to die, surface scum. These words were shouted by the dwarf leading the attackers into the square. He had an obsidian helm perched atop his bald head, and a trio of jagged scars raked across his malevolent face. But do not despair, for soon you will rise again and join us! The evil dwarf grinned. Or, Grog countered, perhaps we could just sit down and talk this all out over a pint. The scarred dwarf's smile widened as he raised a command in hand and pointed at Grog. I have to keep him talking, Grog thought, trying not to let his eyes flick to what he'd just seen in the street behind the evil dwarves. I have to keep their attention on me. Well, if you kill me now, he blustered, you'll never find out where all the gold is hidden. Four dwarves in black leather armor advanced on Grog with maces and clubs at the ready. You think we're here for gold? The dwarf scoffed. Well, why the fuck are you here? Grog shouted, trying to drown out the sound of more dwarven boots hammering on cobblestones. What do you want? Revenge. The dwarf hissed. Nothing more, nothing less. Just revenge. You want revenge, Grog roared. Well, that makes two of us, pal. He raised Ars Ripper above his head and roared as long and loud as he could. It did the trick. The dwarves in black leather hesitated just for a moment. And in that moment, one of the most fearsome warriors Grog had ever known exploded out of the dark street behind a cluster of evil dwarves. His name was Broten Gruntlog. His face was covered in the white full moon war paint, which marked the finest warriors of the Thirteen Realms. His beard and cloak were already spattered with blood, and in his hands was a dire sword, one of the most singularly devastating weapons ever devised by dwarven kind. The evil dwarf closest to Broten was given the privilege of a close-up, albeit brief. Look at the legendary blade as it cleaved him in half at the waist, slicing through his leather armor as though it was water. A robed dwarf suffered a similar fate on the backswing. More dwarves were rushing down the street behind Broton. 
Shouts broke out amongst the invaders. The four brutes bearing down on Grog turned to see what was happening. Two years ago, he could have killed them all before they'd known what had hit them. But the lunging strike he now aimed at the nearest target was slow and clumsy. The leather-clad dwarf turned in time to dodge the attack. He then kicked Grog in the stomach, punched him in the face, and swung his weapon. Grog cleverly blocked the blow with his head. There was an unholy clang as the enemy's mace caught Grog on the side of his steel helm. Then the world tilted sideways, and grey cobblestones came rushing up to meet him as Grog plunged down, down, down into total darkness and painless oblivion. This story just gets better and better. You just listened to chapter three of The Lore, and we have a very, very special guest with us today. We have the author, the lore master, Yeti Goose, also known as Tim Cove, with us in the 13 Realms. Wow, that was my favorite chapter so far. You could feel the tension arising. There was so many awesome scenes. The way you played around with timing and pacing because it didn't feel rushed. You allowed everyone to kind of enjoy and feel what the main character was feeling. Uh, what went into the feeling of this chapter? The book so far. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, timing and pacing in this chapter, because to be honest, I felt that from the very start of the book so far, it's been like all out action. So for me, the next chapter is when we take a breath. But I guess you're right now that I think about it, even within a a chapter that's full of action, it is important to to take those breaths and have those sort of ebbs and flows of pure action, but also sort of lulls in terms of what the character is thinking and going through. I can't give you some kind of, you know, super insightful answer. And I also don't want to sound like a wanker and say that it's intuitive. <laughs> but right. for me, yeah, when I wrote that chapter, I guess, as with any chapter, you kind of just, you know, you know, or you should feel when it's time for like, balls to the wall action and when it is time to take those little breaths and i'm glad to hear that in chapter three that sort of came across for you yeah when the the moment that really stands out for me is when grog is just observing all that he's seeing he sees the undead he sees the the mages and just the the subtle movements of the mage and the way that i sort of pictured it it, it just you could see it in a movie or in a tv series i i I thought it was incredible. Let's go back to the beginning of when you started writing, because you're a man of many talents. You've done so many things in your career. Uh, take us through your journey through your your creative experience. Well, if we're going to encompass everything within the realms of the creative experience, I have indeed done a lot of things. Throughout my life, I've kind of flitted from one thing to the next, going pretty deep on it and spending a few years on it and then moving on to the next thing. So yeah, I've done uh, acting and music and stand-up comedy and game development and photography. And throughout it all, though, I think writing has been like the mainstay. It's been the main thing. And even within those other pursuits, if I was acting, I was also, I'd also be like writing plays. If I was doing game development, I'd also be writing the lore or story or narrative for those games. So writing's always been like the main thing. And 
I guess if we, you know, if you want to do the whole sort of origin story of the writing and the creative journey, it's something I've done my whole life. Like from a little kid, I grew up in a very small country town and there wasn't a lot to do there. And what I did do was sort of just lock myself away in my room and come up with worlds and universes and read a whole bunch of fantasy sci-fi books and yeah, I guess that's something I've always done and even doing today with Kingdom of Dwarves. Who are some of your favorite authors that you've read? What do you take from some of those authors uh, into your own work? Fantasy's always been, I guess, my number one genre. So, of course, Tolkien, um, Lord of the Rings, I've read many times. Beyond that, oh, man, a lot, so much. Uh, <laughs> David, Lots and lots of David Eddings, all of his stuff, all the Dragonlance books like these are sort of my formative experiences with with fantasy so for me this is back in the the 90s when I was just hardcore into all that kind of stuff you know in terms of you know sci-fi and stuff like a bit more quirky stuff like Douglas Adams um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that whole yeah, series that's one of my favorites yeah lots I mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books by lots of authors but I guess those are the ones that stand out as being particularly formative and ones that I read and reread many times and in terms of like drawing sort of inspiration i mean those books definitely shape the way i write in terms of what i write and what i like it's also just everything in in real life you know the the fantasy genre and the worlds that we build is just basically a, a backdrop for stories about people and so it's real experiences with you know, real people and human emotions and human relationships and all that kind of stuff that you experience in your own life that I think all of us find most interesting, really, even within that whole fantastical world. Everything, you know, everything's can be an inspiration, the smallest sort of conversation or interaction with a person or someone you meet or even just someone or something that you see or a place you experience. It, anything can be an inspiration. Uh, inspiration is not really the hard part. The hard part is sitting your butt down and writing right. stuff. <laughs> you've probably had hundreds of worlds that you've created in your own mind. How do you choose the worlds that are worth putting pen to paper and bringing to reality? That's a good and tricky question. Um, <laughs> I guess the, the truth is that if you're going to bother sitting down and coming up with a world and doing it properly and really world building, there's only so much time. And so you can't build that many worlds or write that many books. Like I know some people actually can write books really fast. I, I can't. I've only written two full novels so far and they took me a really long time because I'm a slow writer. And even once I've written something, I then go back and edit it for a super long time. It's not so much about picking and choosing from my many, many ideas of which world I, I want to build next. It's really been... You know, in terms of the proper writing that I'm doing, that I'm actually, you know, putting out there in terms of books and in in this genre, it's not a matter of choosing between various ideas. I've had my my one big idea for world building, which is the books that I've written, and right. I've just gone deep, deep into that. And I'd say the only other world that I'm going deep into is the Kingdom of Dwarves universe. So, apart from my many, you know, childhood dabblings building huge universes and lore and all that kind of cool fun stuff in terms of doing it properly and doing it really deep and putting time and effort and energy into it. It's been my books and now it's Kingdom of Dwarves 
Outstanding. When you write, are you someone that can write anywhere and under any conditions, no matter the noise level or the stimuli that's around you? Or do you have a particular environment that you tend to write best in? I can write anywhere, but I write best in pure isolation. So yeah, I can whip out a notebook when I'm in the waiting room somewhere and scrawl some notes. And I have done quite a lot of writing at various libraries around Melbourne where I live. But the bulk of my writing, so from my two books, which are both pretty long, they're both over about 450 pages, I'd say 70 to 80% of all the words that I got down, I did those on little writing retreats, which was basically be where I would book some tiny remote little Airbnb in the countryside and would be granted a weekend uh, away from my family by my very generous partner and I would go away and just spend, you know, 16, 18 hour days just smashing out as many thousands of words as, as possible. I'd get more done doing that than sort of grabbing an hour here or an hour there mixed in with real life stuff and family obligations and day job and that kind of stuff. So when I write best is, yeah, being isolated from everything and everyone and just getting deeply immersed into into the world building and the story and everything. Yeah, I, I think you said it. it. It's about immersion. It's like going into that world by yourself and just the sensations, the sounds, the the visuals, all these things I'm, I'm pretty sure are just flying through your head while you're writing. When you look at writer's block, I, I don't know if you've dealt with a writer's block, but is there a, a story of just a part that you just didn't quite have the the feeling or, or the words for that came to you in, in a very unique or strange way? Is there a, a eureka moment that you love to share? I'm going to be really disappointing here, Chris. I'm sorry. And, <laughs> and say, no, I, I haven't really. And, and also I'm going to probably sound like a real douchebag because, you know, a lot of people talk about writer's block and it being a real thing. Some writers swear it's real. Some writers say that it's not real. I don't want to put myself, you know, on either side of that fence. But personally for me, I never have really experienced it in the sense that I get to a point in the story and I can't progress any further. I've right. certainly experienced real blocks to my writing, but they're never that. They're always sort of other things interrupting the flow, other things taking away from, from the time. But if I was, say, for example, you know, plonked in one of those small remote units or cabins in the country and given time to write, I never have sort of banged up against that writer's block wall. Yeah, lucky me, I guess. Yeah, no, yeah, it sounds like I'm, it. If I'm into it, then, yeah, the story tends to just flow slowly. I am a slow writer, but, it, yeah, it, it plods along. Do you think it just comes from years and years of practice of world building in your mind since a little kid? Would you, would you attribute it to that? Yeah, it probably is. I mean, it, it probably does come from the fact that my whole life I have been a huge fan of the speculative fiction genre, so fantasy, sci-fi, all that kind of stuff. I've read countless thousands of books. You know, I love movies and I, I guess I've never really thought about it, but that kind of stuff just goes in and sort of – and then with the writing as well, it just helps to build that muscle, which, you know, when when exercised, it tends to just work. I mean, I'm going to terribly – misquote various authors but authors like for example um Stephen King you know he doesn't really believe in writer's block right he believes that if you're a writer then you sit your ass down 
and and you write and writer's block is almost like you know and i'm not saying this but you know a lot, a lot of authors <laughs> do say that it's kind of like an excuse to procrastinate or not be productive it's like mm. what's the thing they say you know surgeons don't get surgeons block you know right. police don't get policeman's block you, you, it's your, if you're writing it's your job and you have to do it whether you feel like it or not so if you don't feel like it you can go oh man i got writer's block today yeah it's it's kind of for some people it might just be a bit of an excuse i don't know where my ability just to sit down and bang out the words comes from but yeah that is the way i work which doesn't mean i'm fast i mean some people smash out like multiple books a month especially in the indie author scene Right. That is not me. I'm like a book a year kind of guy. But yeah, yeah when I sit down to write, I, the words can come. You know, I've never heard it put that way. You're right. Policemen don't get policemen block and, and surgeons and cybersecurity practitioners. You don't get blocks. You just kind of go through your craft. Uh, I got one more question about your, your trade craft. And then we definitely have to start talking a bit about the lore in Kingdom of Dwarves. When you look at all of the things that you've done, photography, stand-up comedy, all these other creative endeavors, what one has influenced your writing the most if you had to pick one of those endeavors? That's another good and tricky question that I'm going to have to think <laughs> about for a moment. I guess acting. Yeah. So I I was pretty much a professional actor in the UK for a couple of years. And during that time, I was sort of within a scene of people who were writing their own plays and putting them on and and very successfully doing so not not plays necessarily written by me but plays that I was in so from that I guess I was given the inspiration being sort of part of that troupe to start writing my own stuff and I did so and then sort of the actors that were within that theater company you know came on board to do my stuff as well so that was probably the the first time that I was sort of given a confidence boost and made to feel that hey, I can write stuff that other people are interested in, in that case, performing and other people are interested in coming and watching and seem to enjoy. So, you know, that might have been like the first sort of real sense of validation or vindication that my writing was worth something and worth doing. So, yeah, from there, I guess I transitioned into stand-up. And all of this, is, of course, is extremely different to the type of uh, writing that I do now. This was mostly sort of fairly frivolous comedy type stuff. But yeah, I guess it, it gave me my my first, you know, real boost of confidence to to write anything really. So yeah, that would have sort of been the biggest influence in, in writing from drawing from one of these other creative pursuits. Yeah, I've done stand-up comedy once. It was in L.A. here in the States. It was my brother. We, we just had a brother's trip. We were just hanging out in L.A., and we quite often challenge each other to many things. Some things are feats of fitness, and some things are feats of the mind, and we decided that stand-up comedy was going to be one of those things. And I will say that being up on stage and with the intent of making people laugh makes public speaking that much more easier for anything else that you ever do just from my perspective. I I often pull from 
that energy whenever I have to go do a keynote speech or anything like that. Let's talk a little bit about your entrance into the kingdom of dwarves, because I'm, I'm not sure everybody knows this, but you were definitely in the discord, but your big splash is when you won that art contest. Tell us about how you discovered the discord, the KOD art. What was your first impression and what made you want to become more involved in the project? Well, I first stumbled upon Kingdom of Dwarves on, is it Rarity Tools or one of those websites where you can basically just scroll through and find upcoming NFT projects. And I was really new in the NFT space at that time. I had no idea what I was doing, but as soon as I sort of even just saw the first art, first image for Kingdom of Dwarves, being a lifelong fantasy nerd, uh, it just jumped out at me. And, you know, I was trying to be smart, with my NFT purchasing, uh, being so new to it and, you know, not wanting to waste my money and wanting to make good investments and all that kind of thing. There was nothing in terms of what I'd learned so far about, you know, buying into an NFT project that really stood out with Kingdom of Dwarves from an investment point of view. Like there didn't seem to be, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on the Twitter and the Discord and super hype and, oh, this is the kind of thing you can buy and flip for a 10x profit. But I didn't care. Like I just was attracted to it because... It was right up my alley. And I think a lot of the community are are the same. I'm sure everyone like me feels that because of the amazing team behind the project and the hard work that is always going on. This is a project that's going to endure for the long term and end up being a fantastic investment. But for me, the attraction wasn't that. You know, I, I bought in and got interested just because, you know, it was right up my alley. The, the story behind it, the art, the world. Um, the plans for, you know, as I'm sure you've talked about on the podcast, the, the kind of things that are going to happen in terms of story and the armory and, and everything with the dwarves, the, uh, having your dwarves in some kind of world, the metaverse, it just was all so attractive. So I got my season one dwarf and sort of hung around the Discord not being particularly active because I was brand new to even the idea of Discord. It was like my first or second Discord server I'd ever been in so yeah I, I was kind of an observer for a while and then the competition was announced prior to season two to you know make a kingdom creation and yeah I, I leapt at that and without wanting to waffle on too much like for years prior to uh you know making that little trailer thing that I made for the kingdom creations I hadn't really done anything creative my partner and I had started a wholesale bakery business we started it six years ago and it kind of has completely taken over our lives and Mm -hmm. you know that's great and it's awesome and that that's her passion and so it's awesome to work with her on that and support her in that but I kind of because that had become so all-consuming I hadn't I hadn't put pen to paper and written anything for like a year you know my books had been neglected I hadn't really done anything so as soon as I started working on that Kingdom of Dwarves thing and, you know, reinstalled uh, Unity 3D game-making software, which I used to use for the indie game studio and retaught myself a lot of the stuff I'd forgotten and, and wrote something for that. It was, it was really good. It was a really good feeling <laughs> to be like just making stuff again. And so, I, yeah, I really threw myself into making something cool for that. And yeah, from there, uh, stuff happened. The, you know, the team reached out to me and asked me if I'd like to work on another little thing. And so I worked on another little thing. And even if it was a little thing, because sort of the, the floodgates had been opened in terms of, oh, yeah, I really like 
making stuff and writing stuff. I just was throwing myself into it with, with, with everything I had. And it was such a good feeling that, yeah, every little task that I was given, I was sort of really giving it my all. And I think that helped to get me to the point where the team trusted me to do more and more things and in the end to, to write the book. So that, that was kind of the, the process. You could definitely tell that you throw everything that you have into it from the writing to even how it's presented to folks. I think you and Somniacs really put a lot of time and attention into how do you make it exciting? You don't want to just say, here you go. Here's a PDF of, of this chapter. Enjoy. You really are a, a showman, a, a presenter, uh, a performer at your core. So when you look at what you're doing now, do you often think about the future or where this is headed, whether it's headed towards television or a movie or anything like that? Do you think about that? Or are you so enthralled with the, the today, the present, that you don't even think about the stuff in the future? Oh, no, I definitely do. In terms of the ultimate end goal, which would be sort of television or film, I would, I guess, leave that more up to the founding team and I guess especially to Evan who's been in that industry for such a long time and has so many connections and knows what the hell he's talking about because I <laughs> certainly don't. But it's super exciting to work on the story which I guess the end goal is for that story to be loosely translated over to TV or film. I mean, that would be, of course, amazing, incredible, mind-blowing. But I can't get too carried away thinking about what that would be like or how that would work. I guess what I have to focus on is just writing the best story I possibly can and making it the best possible story for for reading and because of your podcast, uh, listening to as well. So that it, that is my focus, you know, in the now, with of course all the other cool potential things, you know, in the back of my mind. But yeah, my my focus right now is just making the story as, as awesome and epic as possible. Is there anything that you could tease out or give us a slight spoiler or foreshadowing as to what people can look forward to in the coming chapters? Is there anything that you could give us? You're putting me on the spot because I really, <laughs> I'm not, it's, it's a really tricky balance because I have a lot of community members, you know, reaching out to me asking me questions about their dwarves or particular characteristics that their dwarves have or, you know, what's going to happen with, with uh, you know, the, the faith-bound or the accursed dwarves. And that's completely understandable. Of course they want to know. These are their NFTs. These are their dwarves. They want to know what's special about them, what's going to happen with them. And I also want to, I want to be able to answer those questions, but I don't want to spoil stuff. So what I will say is that me and Som, Somniacs, have planned out pretty much the story that will draw and drive us through all eight seasons. We pretty much know yeah, how, how this story is going to go from this point on how it's going to tie in with all eight season drops. We know it's going to be super epic. We know there's going to be some crazy twists in there, which I'll and I'll tease the fact that they exist, but not what they are. In terms Great. of specifics, let me see if <laughs> let me see <laughs> if I can drop any specific. I will say people probably know this already. The faithbound are not exactly what you think. They are mm. not necessarily the benevolent saviors of the dwarves of the thirteen realms. There are also major characters that already exist within the law that you know that people already hold the NFT of 
that are not who you think they are that are far more important to the story than you can possibly guess. So that's already a thing. What else could I tease, Chris? I could also tease the fact that there are areas, realms, dwarves that exist beyond the mountains that encircle the 13 realms. There's a whole right. world to explore and discover. And even, even beyond that continent, there might be more. I have chills. I cannot <laughs> wait to see what you and Somniacs and Evan pull together for this incredible lure. You know, there are people out there that, that they want to be more like you. They want to take risks. They want to try different things. And they want to find that creative endeavor or that creative medium that really speaks to their heart. For the folks out there that are looking for that thing, what piece of advice would you have for folks that are on that journey? I do not want to put myself in some kind of position uh, where I say that I have any answers whatsoever and should tell people what to do or give any advice because I, mean, I, I guess it's not advice, but it would be, I would say something that might help people who feel that way or people who are like me to feel better. And that is that it's okay to not know exactly what you want to do. It's okay to do lots of different things. Because in truth, I felt I'd done all these different things. And I guess on the surface of it, it sounds cool. Like, oh, cool. He's done all these different things. But there's a problem with that as well in that, you know, I will go deep into a particular thing and spend two or three years doing it and, and make real headway. And it's all awesome. And then I'll stop and go and do something else because I've lost interest in that thing or some other, for some other reason, I stopped doing it and go and do something else. And it's, it sort of sounds cool. Maybe or some, maybe to some people it straight up sounds awful. But the problem with that is you never become a master of a thing. You don't stay in a particular career for a super long time. So, you know, I finished university where I, you know, did journalism and communications and that was like 20-something years ago. And some people I finished uni with came out of that, got a job and have stayed in that job for the next 20 years and now their careers are so far along it's fantastic. And every right. now and again I'd sort of look up on my journey where I'd be doing this, that and the other and look around at my peers and go, whoa, look where they are. They're doing this, you know, they've had this job for 15 years and they're the head of this and they've got all this career advancement and money and stuff. And here's me flitting onto my 18th different project and various harebrained scheme. And um, as time went on, it started to feel worse and worse. But as, you know, up to this point, I'm now at peace with it. I actually read a book called, um, it's called How to Be Everything. Mm. And it basically it basically was a whole book about people who who operate that way and who have many interests and who like doing different things. And it was like a, a nice feeling reading that book and reading that there's loads of people like that. So yeah, not not advice to people who want to do different stuff or want to do creative stuff, but just to, I would want to say to anyone who's not as far along the journey as me that don't feel bad about it. You know, it's, it's okay. It's actually kind of cool because if you, if you keep going that way and if you do always, you know, if you work hard, like it's not like I don't work hard at these things. I've worked really hard. It kind of all can come together. And yeah. I guess for me, kingdom of dwarves even provides an opportunity for it all to come together. So, you know, if I'm going to make like a video presentation, for example, the fact that I have dabbled, you know, that I can write the content, 
Um, I've done the acting work so I can do the voiceover. I've done game development so I can make some make a world in Unity and create a fly through. Like I can su- I can suddenly start to draw on all the different things I've done to to create a thing. So in the end, it, it can be a benefit. It can be an advantage. But it's not an easy path to take. It's not an easy um, journey. But it's pretty fun. And at the end of the day, yeah, if you can draw all the things together, then you've got a whole bunch of different skills which can be useful. I don't care what you say. That was damn good advice because I it definitely resonates with me. I always felt like a generalist, but I ended up learning about this term expert generalist. And uh, it really helped make me understand that I may not be like the ultimate master of one thing, but I can take a lot of interesting things and put them in together in very creative ways. So you're speaking to everyone out there just like us. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you, say hello in the Discord. What are the best ways for people to do that and also get your books? Well, in the Discord, I'm Yeti Goose. Feel free to hit me up at any time with those questions that I mentioned before about the lore, the story, or how the hell you can get your dwarf featured. More on that to come for sure. So yeah, hit me up in the Discord anytime. Timcove.com is my website where you can find links to my books and information about them and me and stuff. Yeah, that's about it. Fantastic. Thanks everyone for hanging out with us and we will see everyone next time.